It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it don't need something with your own head. Beat it up and I've got no peace. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in the fire, but it's just a gang. The government for hire in the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you were getting down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. Aha, and here's that mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. Yep, you're here. Uh, Do you remember (laughs) where we got that little clip from? Oh, was that from a movie? Yeah, it was a movie called The Horrible Dr. Bones. (laughs) And listen, guys, if you're going to be out there and picking a pen name for yourself for goodness sake google it first you never know what you're going to find for the first six months or a year after i started writing about medical preparedness and we started doing our medical preparedness thing Mm -hmm. if you looked us up you'd find the horrible dr bones a 1991 (laughs) um zombie flick really zombie yeah Yeah. crazy zombie (laughs) it was pretty amazing well this is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a mysterious minute of mindfulness in a miserable world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find a thousand, wow, posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And, and this. And I am Amy Alton. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And truly the hostess with the mostest. <laughs> we are indeed the prodigious pair, the courageous couple, and we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. And boy, things may indeed be falling apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a felonious ferret, well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available, please. Ah, but whenever is never and wherever is nowhere, well, you know what? Are you going to know what to do? Or are you just going to be a looky-loo? Well, you know what? It's time to prove to the world that you've got more sense than a basket of badgers by learning what to do for injuries and illness in times of trouble. 
And you know what? While you're at it, why don't you get some supplies and maybe a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge? What better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated but never equaled medical mm-hmm. kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Our stuff is going to help you handle medical issues that you'll face in any disaster, and they're designed by, guess who? That's right, yours truly, an honest-to-gosh medical doctor, and hers truly, an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our stuff for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's, and, well, I think you'll agree, our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us, obviously. So hurry, Murray, reach out to old Dr. Bones and the lovely Nurse Amy. It's so easy. It's so easy. I knew you were going to sing that. Oh, it's so easy. (laughs) Yep. And here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Email us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Like and follow our page, Doom and Bloom, on Facebook. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel, DR Bones Nurse Amy. That's right. Hey, you know what? We've been talking a lot this year about wildfires, and indeed in California, boy, oh boy, we have some big issues. Now, every year, of course, wildfires race through the western part of the country and cause all sorts of property damage and loss of life. And this year, the state of California has borne the brunt of the damage with a series of wildfires devastating Southern California this time over the past week. And they were showing a few signs of slowing down at the time of this recording. Now, uh, hopefully it's gotten a little bit better. Now, the Thomas Fire in Ventura County had burned over 230,000 acres as of the beginning of this week, and it ranks already as the fifth largest fire in California's history, that, at least since records were kept. And what's, that, what is amazing about all this is that it's not even the biggest fire. I mean, the biggest fire was uh, they called the Rush Fire, and it burned about 272,000 8, 8, acres, by the way, in 2012, that the fire now is still only 15% contained at the time of this recording. Now, according to climate analysts, these fires and the fires that devastated Northern California in October, uh, just a couple of months ago, they're part of a larger trend of, they think, climate change that's not only going to get worse. Now, you may not think that climate change is the reason, but there's no arguing that California has been the location of, gosh, a lot of wildfire events recently. Now, 14 of the 20 largest fires in California's history have actually occurred since the year 2000. Now, that's despite getting some rain earlier in the year from El Nino, California's coming off a record heat wave in September that really dried out the state and turned Southern California into a tinderbox. And of course, a combination of high winds and climate change and the, the average wildfire season seems to last longer. Matter of fact, it seems to be at least a couple of months longer than it was in the early 1970s. I mean, sure enough, fires in December, hmm. And the amount of land that's burned in the United States in general and since 1984 is about double what would be expected from previous data. Even California's public relations boss, Governor Jerry Brown, calls the wildfires a new normal for California, and that's pretty scary. He thinks it's something that can occur every year or maybe every few years in which there's going to be an actual firefighting Christmas, and that would be way beyond 
the normal time that people expect wildfires. Now, the wildfires since 2000, gosh, I'm looking at all the various wildfires, and if you count all these up, it's just amazing. Hundreds of thousands of acres. Matter of fact, as I'm going down, and these are just in the last few years, I see probably about 3 million acres of burnt forests all told, and that's pretty amazing because between 1930 and 1999, in other words, before 2000, there were only about six fires that had over 100,000 acres in California, and I have a list here of at least 14 that are over uh, 150,000 acres. So that means there must have been quite a few fires that were lesser fires, but still pretty amazing. Now, as larger fires burn in the state, there are all sorts of more uh, expenditures that go along with fighting fires, right? And California's Department of Fire and Forestry Protection actually spent just in 2007, uh, 2017, 505 million bucks fighting fires across the state. That is a lot of money. 20 years ago, as a matter of fact, the state only spent about 47 million on fighting fires, and that's just 20 years ago. For 505 million this year, 47 million 20 years ago. Even well, you know, like I say, is even in a rich state like California, the money's got to come from somewhere, right? <laughs> taxes, taxes, exactly. You can expect the states and maybe the nation's taxpayers to bear the burden. So the question is: Is California going to have a fire tax? Well, think about it. At this point, any fire tax or something like that. Well, you know, California you in general likes everybody to redistribute the share the. Over- the expenses. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say are, share the wealth, well, but share the burden. <laughs> share the burden, right? Exactly, and it is that's a, the motto. A heck, a heck of a burden. I mean, these, you know, we've reported on these fires now, really, for the last few years. It I seems honestly, like every couple of months we have to we have to talk about honestly don't, a local fire. I have no idea what they're going to do. It's these, pretty amazing. They get like no rain. They have no water sources. They have to get water from other states. They don't have rain. And they have built so many houses that are just tender for the fire. And we they just know, keep feeding right. it. And we know what that's like. Just last year, our home in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and near Ski, on Ski Mountain, was very close to a real conflagration that burned Came like close. a just a, I think a hundred homes just on our exact mountain on the exact mountain that we're on. It burned about a hundred homes to the foundation, and. It just skipped over the hilltops. It was just depending on the wind, the way it was blowing. We got lucky. We were sort of in a little bit of a ridge, and it hit behind that ridge, hopped over our house, and hit hit just, like you said, not too far away from us, and then just kept burning. Right, and you can just still see the scars. Areas. Yeah, you can still see the scars on different sides of mountains in the distance. Unbelievable. And it's amazing. It but killed get- Beginning, yeah, go ahead. We killed 14 people it and did. injured 134. That was horrible. But getting back to California, the question is are things ever going to change? I don't foresee in the future they're going to suddenly start having rainstorms like we have every afternoon at 3 or 4 o'clock in South yep, Florida. South Florida. Mm-hmm. They're not a tropical rainforest, they just don't get a lot of rainfall, and, and it's changing. And is it man-made? Is it nature? Have we had a, a tiny little wobble in some rotation that have caused certain areas in this world to become drier? I, I don't know what it is, honestly. 
I, I don't believe, you know, all the climate change is caused by man. Because seriously, folks, if you drive around the country, you're going to notice huge areas where there's not a single human being for miles and miles and miles of nothingness. And then you come to a city, and there's a lot of people in that city, but then there's nobody in between. An occasional tiny little town, if that. So we're not terribly overpopulated, at least in this country. And there are huge forests in many different areas. I just, I don't know what we're going to do with California. It's like, to me, it's like the Keys. We know in South Florida that we get hurricanes. The the land mass in some of these Keys is literally, what, oh, yeah. a few hundred feet wide? Right. Right. Literally, if you got down on the ground and you look straight over to the water, it's like the land is like... One or one two inch. inches yeah, right. above. Above it, right. I mean, what do you expect when a hurricane's going to come? It's not going to be a great outcome. Maybe we shouldn't allow certain types of housing to be put put up in the Keys. These mobile homes are, are just a death trap if people don't leave. Right. And maybe some areas of California where there is, where there's a lot of wood. Severe drought. And severe drought all the time. Maybe we need to just stop allowing unending building of neighborhoods in dangerous areas. Maybe California needs to designate wildfire hazard zones zones Uh and just don't put housing there. (laughs) Because I, I know these neighborhoods are just, they're all going up in fire. Once it starts... The thing is, it, it's uncontrollable. There's not enough water. There's not enough manpower. And there's certainly no hope of into it because the rains aren't coming. They're just not coming. That's right. You, you have to depend on man-made no efforts from to stop nature, right, the fire from reaching or, homes or Yes, people. or from any anything or anyone or any being to come save these people. It's They're just at at the mercy of whatever the fire wants to do. Wow. So what can you do in the face of an irresistible force like that? You know, a wildfire, can you protect your property and and yourself from being damaged or injured or killed by a wildfire? Well, let's talk a couple. Let's talk about property defense first. So let's start about that. But before they just before they leave, which which is the best defense. Yes. Is an offense of leaving. Right. Well, we'll talk about (laughs) prevention and maybe not have the fire Go directly to your home, maybe bypass That'd your home. That would be awesome. So two principal, uh, principles for property defense are creating a defensible space and vegetation management. And it should be noted, just like you say, that property defense is not the same as personal defense. The main principle for personal defense in, in the face of a wildfire is simply get out of Dodge, hit the road jack, ski-daddle, you know, whatever, just... Don't stay where there is a fire. Exactly. But let's talk about how you can prepare your property in advance, have a shot at it surviving a wildfire. So let's talk about vegetation management first. With vegetation management, the key is to direct fires away from your house. And there are several ways to accomplish this, all of which require vigilance and regular maintenance. And one thing you need to do is you need to clean up dead wood and leaf piles that lie within about 30 feet of your building structure. you got to clear off the roof and gutters of uh, leaves, for example, or other debris that might be flammable. Yeah, you may have spent time and money putting all this lush landscaping around your home, but you know what? You may have to choose. Do you want 
attractive but flammable plants next to your structure, or do you want fire protection? You probably shouldn't have a lot of plants right next to your home. I've seen some homes in which there are trees growing through them, and really green homes, but the truth of the matter is, is that those are probably fire traps. Now, you'll want to thin out those thick canopy trees if they're near your house, and you want to make sure that no two tree canopies actually touch each other. Any trees that are within, let's say, 50 feet of flat land or 200 feet if they're downhill from your retreat, you got to thin them out so that you're pruning branches off maybe below 10 to 12 feet high and separating them, if you could, by 10 to 20 feet. Now, now you shouldn't be doing sense. this during a wild No, no. What? Because then you're going to be just having all this wood fall on the ground, right? Absolutely. But it makes sense. You're, you're making it less dense, less like a forest. Right. You know, more like landscaping in around a home instead of a dense forest. Now, some people like to live within a very densely forested area. That's not a great place if you get a lot of wildfires. There are places that don't get a lot of wildfires. We at our home do not get a lot of wildfires. We're near the Everglades. We have a lot of rain down here. Right. So if we wanted to plant, which we kind of do, a lot of vegetation up against our house... Um, lots of grouped trees. We have some areas that have grouped trees. Yeah, berms. That's okay for us. Mm-hmm. But if you know that this is an issue where you live, you need to fortify yourself by following these directions. I, I think it's excellent advice, honey. All right. Well, where we are, in, uh, right by the Everglades, we get more rain than people that live by the beach, for example. Yes, we do. And it's almost like a rainforest here sometimes of the year. It's <laughs> yeah. like a monsoon right. season every, to- every day. Torrential about- downpours. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if we do get fires, which I'm not saying we don't get fires, there are fires that burn in the Everglades. Some of them are man-made because they're trying to burn down the Malaluca tea trees. Right, so exotic, <laughs> invasive species. Because they yeah. suck up all the water. Uh, right. Somebody thought that would be a great idea to plant Malaluca trees out there, suck up and dry up all the water in the Everglades so they can, guess what, build neighborhoods. Ah, yes, yes, indeed. more housing. Very, po- very popular. Now, no tree, whether it's uh, an invasive species like a Malaluca or mm-hmm. a palm tree or... Any or fruit tree, even no trees should ever overhang the roof. So that's one thing that's very important is always plan your landscaping so your roof is never going to have branches or part of a tree hanging over it. Now, of course, also at the base of a trunk of a tree, you should always eliminate uh, bushes. Some people like to have bushes around the tree, sort of make a little uh, it's like a, a landscaping fe- it, yeah. feature, but that's like putting kindling around the, the log, of, logs, of, log yes. of your campfire. <laughs> that's That makes sense. And so that's that's a bad thing. And, of course, once you prune your branches, you can't just sit there. you got to dispose of them safely away from any buildings. Now, that's log- when you see these people with the wood chippers. Oh, yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah, but even making mulch, that's almost like kindling too, huh? Well, I would, I would take the mulch and I'd make a lasagna layer in my garden beds. Ah. Aha. We'll have to talk about that sometime. You are indeed a master gardener <laughs> in the state of Florida, well, just like I am. And you, you know what to do. Good it's, thing for the soil. That's right. Uh, speaking of soil, soil is what you have your garden on and, mm-hmm. of course, your lawn if you have lawns. Uh, the Your garden and your lawn should always be well hydrated and you want to collect any lawn cuttings, other debris, 
from your garden that could be used as fuel by a fire. If water is limited, always keep your dry lawns cut back as much as you possibly can. And of course, you know, we in the preparedness community really don't have that much use for lawns anyway. You might as well use the land for vegetable and herb gardens. I think that would make a lot more sense. But then again, that's the prepper in me. Now, <laughs> now the second principle of property wildfire protection is the defensible space. And a defensible space is an area where a structure um, is protected mm-hmm. by wood and vegetation that's either treated, cleared, or reduced to slow the spread of flames towards towards the structure. And so that defensible space will provide room to work also for people that are fighting a fire. And the amount of defensible space you need depends on whether you're on flat land or on a steep slope. Flatland fires spread more slowly than a fire on a slope, hot be- simply because hot air rises, right? And so therefore flames rise. And a fire on a steep slope, a slope, especially with wind blowing uphill, that spreads very, very fast and produces what we call spot fires, little embers that ignite vegetation ahead of the main burn, simply because there are all these small bits of burning debris in the air. And with the wind, that debris is carried to other areas that could start burning. That's why the area of vegetation management is larger, as I mentioned before, if it's downhill of your home. Now, wood piles and other flammables should be kept at least 20 to 30 feet away from structures. If you have gardening tools, always keep them in sheds. Those sheds should be at a distance from the house as well. Now, one thing that might be interesting is having maybe concrete walkways, maybe some perimeter walls. These might be actually be helpful in impeding the progress of a fire. And so that's something that you might consider. It could be very decorative. It could actually be for a retreat, a, a protective perimeter, mm-hmm. all sorts of different things that... Uh, these perimeter walls and and use of concrete might actually be helpful with regards to both natural and man-made disasters. Now, of course, if you have an attic, uh, there's probably a vent there. It should be covered with screening to prevent small embers from entering the structure. That's important. And there's a great website called firewise.org that tells you all about how to fireproof your home as well as best as you can. Firewise, like W-I-S-E? F-I-R-E. W-I-S-E dot org. Dot org. Okay. That's right. Now, of course, once you've created a defensible space, and that's well before a fire actually hits the area, your natural inclination is going to be to want to defend it. But unfortunately, you have to remember you're going to be in the middle of a lot of heat and smoke. I remember in Gatlinburg, there were before the Gatlinburg fire oh occurred, there gosh. were fires in Georgia. On the other side of the All mountain. the way in Georgia that wound up causing a great deal of smoke in our that area. Was terrible. And definitely not good for oh, people with respiratory lungs issues. Were killing me. Yeah, you, you definitely need extra inhalers at that point or just get out of dodge, which is what we ended up doing. Yep. Just leaving. Right. We were actually out of there a couple of weeks before the we big left, fire. I think uh, didn't November even know if our home 14th existed. Or 15th, right. And the fire happened yeah, two weeks later. Right. That was crazy. Right. It took a while for us to even find out whether their home still stood. <laughs> That's why I was just hesitating. It was That was days of torture. Yes. I know how these people feel who have the fires who come through, and you're like, well, am I going to have a foundation, or am I going to have a structure that's probably mostly burned or completely gone? I, I didn't expect us to have anything, honestly. I didn't either. When and he seeing took a some picture of the other places and mailed it to us, 
I was just, I was shocked. We were so lucky. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, considering houses oh. so near to us were, I mean, there was only the foundation left, and to oh. have a fire that burned so hot that it, I mean, we saw all sorts of metal sort of melted and glass. And you, you know, a lot of these people, this was not just a vacation home. There are a lot of vacation homes, but it's their their home home. And so I can imagine all the memories and little tchotchkes that we've bought along the sure. years and put on the walls or we have them sitting on tables that are... Some we made ourselves. Yeah, we sure did. That are our, our memories to think of all of that going away. But, but then there were people who have all their memories because that's their home. All their children's baby pictures. and I know. Oh, all the things from and maybe even their parents or grandparents. I'm so sad. People really keep so sad. many, you know, things that that they remember memories from, and just to lose that all, my heart breaks for anyone who loses a home for any reason, whether it be a fire or a tornado or a hurricane. The loss of of your home where you live, where you keep everything, is just amazing oh. how vulnerable we are. I, I don't know how people move on. It's that's really tough. Although you know, it's just material things, and as long as your family's healthy, I know that's that's what is supposed. It, it's what is important, but you still have that heartbreak. All right. Well, moving on is what you need to do if you're in the sure. path of a wildfire. Yes. So, follow the principles of personal defense and get out of dodge if there is a safe way to leave. I mean, let's face it; your family's lives may depend on it. Yeah. And if you're hitting the road, always make sure you have a go bag already packed to have it always there, ready to just grab and go. Grab and go, as we say. We have a grab and go. We have a grab and go medical kit, as That's a matter of fact. True. Uh, always have a, me- a bag packed with food, water, extra clothes, batteries, flashlights, and more. Don't forget to bring your cell phone, of course. That's a very important way to communicate, if possible. Uh, any important papers that you might need, and especially some cash, because remember that your if the power goes out, your purchasing power may go out, too, if you can't run credit cards. So always have some cash, especially in small bills. Now, as an added precaution, make sure you shut off any air conditioning system that draws air into the house from outside. That's important. Turn off your appliances. Close all your windows and lock all your doors. Now, like any other emergency, you should have some form of communication system established with your loved ones in case you're not together. If a fire occurs uh, as a rapid event as opposed to something you have a lot of notice about, well, you might be at work and your kids might be at school and it may be hard to get everybody together. Make sure you have a plan of action that would allow people to connect with each other. And speaking of connecting, voice calls may go out, but texts, texting, texting. actually, texting <laughs> is probably going to still function even when voice calls are not possible. So always remember to learn how to text, especially you older folks. And I think that's important. A lot of people, a lot of old folks in my family don't text and don't see the reason for it. Well, this is one good reason for it. Now, if you have a medical kit, you sh- and you should. It, it needs masks, eye protection, hand protection, uh, burn ointment would be good. Aloe vera is a good natural alternative. Nonstick dressings, specialized burn dressings are also available that incorporate all of this stuff, burn ointment and, and dressings, uh, or even just 
taking a regular gauze and uh, putting some petroleum jelly on it and sort of mush it together, and that makes a, a pretty decent burn dressing. Uh, gauze rolls and medical tape can be used for covering that, covering the burn dressing up. And you should round out your kit with things like scissors and cold packs, maybe some, and, and especially for wildfire areas, some eye wash because smoke is indeed a major irritant to the eyes. Now, if your route of vehicular escape is blocked, you may have to hit the road by foot. And if so, boy, oh boy, make sure you are dressed in long pants, sleeves, and heavy boots, even if it's warm. Uh, a wool blanket is also very helpful as an additional outside layer. Wool is relatively fire resistant. Now, some people think that it's a good idea to wet the blanket first, but don't. Wet materials transfer heat much faster than dry materials and will cause even more severe burns than using dry wool. If you must stay inside a building, retreat to the side farthest from the fire with the least number of windows because windows indeed transfer heat to the inside. That is, unless there's a great deal of smoke only on the inside because the house is on fire and uh, it is really smoky there. And you should stay in the building if you can, unless you have to leave due to the smoke or the building actually catching fire. And if that's the case, well, wrap yourself in the blanket and leave only your eyes uncovered. And understand you may have a lot of trouble breathing because of the smoke. And in that instance, you should stay low and crawl out of the building. There's less smoke and heat the lower you go. So keep your face down towards the floor and that helps protect your airway, something that's very, very important because you can recover from burns on your skin, but not if you get a major burn in your lungs. That is something that is really important to know. The, the burns in your lungs, if you wind up having major smoke inhalation, you have to realize that you may have difficulty talking, may have difficulty breathing because the airways uh, may have burns. And if your actual lung tissue is burned, you can't actually absorb oxygen into your body. So we're talking about some major, major risk here. Now, of course, no one is immune to the risk for wildfires and hurricanes, tornadoes, other natural disasters. And you might not expect to have a tidal wave in Nebraska, but you know what? Each yes, area. Let's hope not. Yeah, let's hope not. That would be like kind of That bad. would be bad. <laughs> but each area has its own issues. you got to know what the issues what are for are your you area. What are you deal with? Absolutely. And that will help you prepare. And not and have... only what the most common are, but what are some of the things that just might happen? You know, if if things go super duper wrong. Oh yeah, well, like EMPs and things like that. Yeah. Well, we're gonna have a, a... or earthquakes where mm-hmm. you don't normally expect earthquakes, but something could happen and may have happened in the past. Yes, like the super volcano or the super oh, the super volcano under Yellowstone. Right. Sure. They say it's overdue for some major event. And they're saying that. The buildup underneath is much bigger than they thought. Uh-oh. Well, but that could be thousands of years. From now. That's right. I mean, really. <laughs> but, hey, you never know. I think that would be a tough one to prepare for, though. Right. I think that's just preparing is getting frankly, getting out of the continent. That, that's going to be getting, like nearly worldwide. Leaving the continent would probably yeah, be a good idea for that. I really be able to prepare for that. But anyway, look for the remote things, too. Right. Well, know what it is that might occur in your area, and that'll give you the best chance of being prepared for that disaster. If And if you're going to be resilient in the face of adversity, you got to know what you're facing. You know, the subject of a lot of 
post-apocalyptic fiction and zombie movies and things like that is the EMP, the electromagnetic pulse. And we're a little more concerned about this type of event actually occurring now that North Korea is around and rattling its saber. So I connected with Anthony Fury, who's a columnist, and he wrote a book about electromagnetic pulses. As you might know, I'm concerned about North Korea's threats to go, well, literally ballistic on us. And one scenario involves something called an electromagnetic pulse or EMP. Now, one type of EMP occurs as a result of a nuclear explosion high in the atmosphere. Now, this doesn't kill people simply from the blast, but destroys electrical infrastructure and as a result, possibly an entire society. Dr. Peter Pry of the now disbanded EMP Commission communicated with me recently, and among other things, he said that I deeply regret that after 17 years, the EMP Commission has not been able to persuade Washington to protect the American people from the existential threat that is EMP. I regret even more keenly that Washington is so broken that it cannot muster the common sense and political will to do what is necessary. Our guest today is Anthony Fury, a national columnist for the Sun newspaper chain in Canada. You can also see his work in Time, the New York Times, uh, the New York Daily News, I'm sorry, and other well-known publications. And he has appeared on BBC, Fox News, and many other media outlets. Anthony Fury's new book, Pulse Attack, the real story behind the secret weapon that can destroy North America, tells you all about electromagnetic pulse warfare. Anthony, are you there? Hey, Joe. Yeah, here. Glad to be here. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Anthony, yeah, you wrote an article. Oh. Thanks for coming on the show. Anthony, you wrote an article for Fox News recently that outlines the risks to North America about the detonation of a nuclear weapon in the atmosphere. Now, you're a sensible journalist, I hope, working for a respected media outlet. Why did you decide to write about this previously way out topic, not just an article, but an entire book? Well, great question, Joe. And a couple years ago, I met with a former head of the CIA to talk about the Iran deal, Obama's uh, Iran deal, and some criticisms about that and so forth. And at the end of the meeting, uh, the, the former director said to me, hey, do you have a minute? I want to talk to you about this thing I'm trying to raise awareness for, electromagnetic pulse warfare. And, and you know, Joe, I'd heard about it maybe once or twice kind of in passing, and I just didn't think much about it, you know, positively or negatively or anything. It just hadn't been on my radar. And a few minutes conversation turned into well over an hour, and I had what was a master class in this subject, and my jaw just dropped. And I thought, I can't believe more people in the mainstream aren't talking about this. I, I was still a little bit skeptical. I mean, this is a very high-level credible source, but I went and I did my research. The more I researched it, the more I realized just how alarming and serious this is and how many people in the prepper community and the survivalist community who have been talking about this – these are folks who are ahead of the curve. So I set forth to, to write a book really for the general public and the mainstream audience to say, come on, guys, this thing is real, and it is really to our peril that we're not talking about it more. You're absolutely right, and I'm, I am personally very concerned about it, and, and it's theoretically a low likelihood possibility, but not so much anymore. Now, what aspects of normal modern existence could be affected by a nuclear EMP? 
Well, pretty much everything. Uh, we live in what, as, as I call it in a chapter in my book, headline, the electronic civilization. We live in an era where everything is electronics. I just got a new car. I was driving a, a 2007 for, since then, and now I got a 2018. And this thing is just like a giant computer. And you realize, man, we, we, we can't do anything uh, without electronics. But with an atmospheric EMP, if it's done successfully, this creates this sort of gamma ray waveform interaction, a gamma ray that goes through a waveform that goes through uh, the atmosphere and hits anything within line of sight. And depending on how it hits, this could disrupt the entire electronic grid. And you think, oh, okay, well, that means we can't use our iPhone uh, for a few hours until we get it back and set up. It means we just have to go read a book. Hold on a second. Electronics controls our water. It controls cleaning our water, getting it to us, the regional food hubs. The whole fact that we live in cities is because we have the electronics to allow us to do it. It would basically mean we would live like we lived in 1850 before the Industrial Revolution, and you couldn't sustain a whole population base that we have today with 1850s technology. You're right. Although, interestingly enough, in the 1850s, in 1859, as a matter of fact, there was a solar EMP that actually hit. I mean, of course, we had very, very little uh, electrical infrastructure at that point, as you can imagine, but we did have telegraph lines. And sure enough, the telegraph lines were disrupted throughout the entire country. And that was in 1859. So you're, you're absolutely right. Even, even in a situation where we think we're ready, we're actually going to be thrown back right into the middle of the 19th century, just as you say. Now, why has this event become so possible? Isn't there an agreement not to detonate nuclear bombs in the atmosphere? What, what has changed that has made this now something that even skeptics are concerned about? Well, yeah, when I first wrote my book, Pulse Attack, uh, to your point earlier saying this is a low probability event, it was a cautionary tale going, guys, why aren't we looking into this more? Uh, we get insurance on our homes, even though the odds of our house catching fire are very low. People buy lottery tickets, even though it probably ain't going to happen. There are people who uh, do specialized research in obscure forms of cancer, and we don't criticize them for doing that, even though those cancer rates are very low. We want to know all we can about every threat. So regardless of the probability, the threat is real. Why aren't we looking into it? Well, time out, though. One second. September 6, North Korea does their most recent nuclear detonation, their underground explosion. And afterwards, they come out with this press release, uh, grandstanding and talking about how great it was and successful as they usually do. One thing a lot of my colleagues in the mainstream media missed, though, was at the bottom of that release, Kim Jong-un says, and guess what? We now have the ability to do an EMP attack, and we plan to do it against the United States. And I saw this, I thought, whoa, I can't believe this is not the headline story. The first time ever that a world leader has threatened another country with an EMP attack. So the probability, Joe, just skyrocketed, and this thing became real fast. Uh, a real in the worst possible kind of way, especially in the hands of a uh, saber rattler like uh, Kim Jong-un of North Korea. So I think that this is really now one of the most likely things that is going to happen. I, I can't imagine that uh, Mr. Ung, uh, Jong-un with his uh, toys, I mean, he's basically like a kid with a, a hand grenade. And one day I think he will pull the pin. The question is when. Now, what would you estimate uh, Anthony, to be our level of preparedness for such an event at the moment? 
Well, I'll tell you, I did a lot of research both for America and for Canada, where I'm based out of Toronto. I can tell you in Canada, it's you know 0.5%. It is absolutely atrocious. In the United States, things are a little better. You know, they're not 0.5%. They're they're two percent. You know, uh, fractionally better. I I know that there's been attempts to harden Cheyenne Mountain, where our NORAD facilities are based, which is which is great. Uh, obviously, we watch the skies there to make sure there are not other. Uh, nuclear attacks incoming. So if you can protect the homeland from nuclear attacks, that's a great thing. And there are conflicting reports about what degree of military assets and military infrastructure is hardened from an EMP blast. They take these things very seriously. And and people who worked on these starfish prime detonations back in the early 60s have gotten in touch with me since I wrote the book and the Fox News piece to tell me about what they were doing in the secret labs, still classified information. But even if all all the military assets are hardened, and I, I, I do not believe they all are, zero of our civilian infrastructure is protected, the, the stuff and the people that the military is looking to protect. So you're talking about still tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people who might see if their local transformer station goes down, a lack of power for days, weeks, or in the worst case scenario, many months that stretches into the year. Civilian infrastructure is just not protected. And there have been a number of examples out there of a lot of uh, regulators and utility companies just looking to pass the buck. And that's the great scandal. You know, we have no definitive structure or no definitive authority that, uh, that has any power with regards to funding for a protection of the grid type project. Even our military infrastructure is connected to civilian infrastructure unless they have their own electrical grid that is separate from ours. I don't know that that's the case. Matter of fact, I doubt that that's the case. So I think that even our military infrastructure would be affected by damage to the civilian one. So it is pretty amazing that we're so mired in inaction regarding what seems to me an existential threat to North America. You know, it's a great point, Joe. And what I don't get, you mentioned Dr. Peter Pry, and I have a chapter in the book talking about his personal story. I also have a chapter in the book talking about uh, Andrea Boland, who is a, a state representative uh, from uh, the state of Maine, and she's a Democrat, and she's really serious about this issue. So we know that this is an issue that people on all sides of the political aisle have interest in when they learn about it, when they get passionate about it. We've also seen all the different estimates about costs. You, we'll hear about some government project reforming this or that, and the price tag is many billions of dollars. They still somehow might manage to find the money for it. Uh, the costs for this and the regulatory burden for this are very minor. Most of the recommendations are that, okay, when your parts and your electrical grid come up for renewal in the next few years and so forth, can you get them renewed with EMP compliant parts, which might only cost a few dollars more than the parts you currently have, if that. So it's not like this is a major overhaul. It's actually a pretty easy fix for all the sort of uh, concerns and the, the sort of seemingly science fiction tale of everything that could go wrong, even though it's entirely science fact, the solution is actually pretty boring and run of the mill. I don't understand why they're not doing it. I think what it is, is that the uh, military considers it to be a civilian infrastructure issue. So they don't want to take charge of it. The uh, civilian authorities or let's say the National Energy Reliability Corporation or the North American Energy Reliability Corporation uh, considers it to be a national security issue, so they don't believe that it's their responsibility. And certainly the utilities don't want to spend any money more than they need to. I mean, their responsibility is to their shareholders and their rate 
payers. Uh, and I believe that we just have no idea who should be in charge of this. And this is something that I think has really caused us to be just weak. And certainly I can't imagine that there's any international participation in, or any international cooperation between the U.S. and Canada on this. It's probably not even on the radar. No, it's not. All the research I've done shows that a lot of these organizations don't even understand. We have these freedom of information laws like you do in the U.S. where I was getting documents on what the Canadian government knows about. And a lot of times they even have to call me and say, sorry, we, we don't even understand your basic question. That's how alarming it is. And, you know, Joe, you make a great point that the, the civilian military stuff and they want to pass the buck to each other. Uh, the main thing I've learned from just being a, a political columnist in general is that politics is downstream from culture. You're not going to get any action from the so-called experts. You're not going to get any action from the elites. The people have to demand the action. And it, it's, a, it's a blessing that the survivalist community and the preppers out there understand this in detail, and they're calling for action. They're doing things about it. It needs to get out to the general public, because once those folks start speaking about it, then you're going to get a critical mass building. Well, that actually, that comes to my – that really feeds into my next question, which is how has your book been received by the general public? How has your work and, and writings about EMPs been received by those people that so far really haven't been paying attention? Well, you know, I think for a lot of people it's been eye-opening, and I'm pleased that the Senate of Canada invited me up to speak uh, to them, to a number of senators up there on the issue, and, and, and all across the aisle, bipartisan senators came and listened, and I, I was really glad to see that, and there were calls to declassify what the Canadian government knows. Unfortunately, not much is going to be released when they are declassified. As you know, Joe, there's this weird sort of thing out there where some people want to call this you know, not true or a conspiracy theory or what have you, and then when you ask them, what are you talking about, they actually can't back it up. They maybe just end up saying, oh, the likelihood of this is pretty low. Well, the likelihood of most horrible things happening are pretty low. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be talking about it. As I said, I looked at all the documents dating back for you know, the 40s, the Manhattan Project, and the 60s, the Starfish Prime, sourcing new freedom of information stuff, and, and the body of evidence is just amazingly there. This is not up for debate. The only thing that's up for debate really is how severe will it be, how resilient are is technology today compared to in the 1960s? And the answer to that isn't just to turtle and ignore the question. The answer is, well, let's research it more, get the government, the universities, uh, you know, well-educated individuals, and get some best practices going so, so we can learn from it. Well, I'm glad to hear that you were able to speak to some of the political figures up in Canada. Uh, did you ever get the feeling from any of them that you're fear-mongering? That is a, a common accusation that is leveled at people like us who, who speak about these types of society-ending events. Yeah, and Yeah, yeah I, I, I certainly do. And sometimes I go on other radio shows or speaking public forums, and people ask that question, and I say, well, read the book or read all the other information that's out there and the articles. I don't know what to tell you. It's government documents. It's university laboratory documents. There is no doubt as to the fact that electromagnetic pulse is a real thing. There's no doubt that uh, Russia did it in the 1960s over Kazakhstan, that it happened uh, above Hawaii in the 1960s. There's zero doubt that uh, Kim Jong-un is threatening to do it and wants to do it. we got to talk about this. The fear-mongering angle is, is bizarre. It's like somebody saying, like I said, oh, make sure you get uh, home insurance. Make sure you get car insurance. Oh, you're fear-mongering about being in a crash. No. We obviously hope for the best, but we prepare for the worst. And that's all this is. 
Well, that is the uh, prepper motto there, so you certainly uh, encapsulated that very well. I just want to say that society and general public is my, is paralyzed by something called normalcy bias. And normalcy bias states that, well, every day is going to proceed like the previous day simply because they, it always has. And when it doesn't, when something actually occurs that's a black swan event or or something that is, well, life-changing, well, we're paralyzed. And so we're, par- we're going to be paralyzed after an event just as we seem to be paralyzed beforehand. Uh, what do you think is the solution to this issue? You know, it's, it's a very challenging issue, normalcy bias, when it comes to the EMP attack because – you know, let's say people want to get action on uh, gangland warfare in their community. Well, they're only going to start talking about it after there's been a few gang shootings, and then we go, oh, we have a problem here. So it has to – small versions of it happen for people to wake up for it to be a problem. The problem with the EMP attack is there could be some failed versions. There could be small versions. The worst-case scenario, though, that takes down the whole North American grid, perhaps both East Coast and West Coast at the same time, could be the very first one. So there may not be these minor versions that wake us up to it, and that's the biggest challenge talking about uh, and beating back that normalcy bias. So I, I think just having the conversations you know, we're having now hopefully wakens people up to it. Anthony, thank you so much for your time. Where can we find a copy of your book? Uh, my book, Pulse Attack, The Real Story Behind the Secret Weapon That Can Destroy North America, is available at Amazon.com. Simple as that. And where else uh, can we, or how else can we connect with your work? Uh, You can go to fury.ca, F-U-R-E-Y.ca, where I write, obviously mostly about Canadian politics, but about a lot of international affairs and some things going on uh, with my friends, you guys south of the border in in the United States. What else can we expect to see from you in the future? Well, you know, I'm definitely keeping on this issue because it's changing and there's action coming on electromagnetic pulse. And I think that's great news. I just hope it's uh, right action. And I'm I'm working on a book about uh, radical Islamist terrorism right now and the various organizations in North America that uh, create subterfuge for them. Really alarming stuff that I hope more of my mainstream colleagues uh, pay attention to. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Anthony Fury, his book. Pulse Attack, the real story behind the secret weapon that can destroy North America. Get it on Amazon. Anthony, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Joe. It's been a pleasure. As an aside, I'm very encouraged by Anthony Fury and his work, being that he is a journalist and has the ability to reach so many people, many more than I can, certainly, from my little podcast podium here. And... I'll tell you that the more people that Anthony can reach with regards to his message about the dangers of an EMP and the importance of strengthening our grid and anything that I can do to help him, believe me, I will. I think that this is something that's really important. I appreciate the efforts of Dr. William Graham, Dr. Peter Pry, and the other people that have been involved uh, with the EMP Commission. I think that it was a travesty for the Department of Defense to disband it simply by not renewing its contract, even though it was a grand total of, I think, 300000 a year, to keep it going. I just don't understand that it actually frosts my cookies. And I'll tell you that we had better start taking this danger seriously because, believe me, North Korea is taking it 
seriously as a tool in their nuclear arsenal. That's all the time we have for this week's Survival Medicine Hour with, hey, where are you going? Bye! <laughs> <laughs> with Nurse Amy and Dr. Bones, Joe Alton, MD, and Amy Alton, ARMP boy. She's a busy, busy lady with a lot of chores that she has to do. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. To contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.